podcast listeners, thanks for tuning in to episode three of the Rapid Ascent podcast. Uh, I'm your host, Ben Hucker. I hope you enjoyed episodes one and two. Episode one with Sean Purcell, episode two with Sean Coombs, both fascinating stories. But today, we've got something extra special. We've got the founder of Rapid Ascent, the man himself, John Jacoby. Now, John is arguably one of Australia's greatest adventurers and endurance athletes, but Outside of that little niche community, is relatively unknown, and I think John likes it that way. So, here's a quick intro, though, for those not familiar with John's background. At just 19, John became a world marathon kayak champion. He went on to win three more world kayak titles, along with three multi-sport world championships by the tender age of 22. He was given the keys to the city of Melbourne in recognition of these feats at the age of 22. Can you imagine? His crowning glory though was perhaps being awarded Adventurer of the Year in 2015, but he talks of his adventures with his mates as his most satisfying achievement. And he even managed to scale Makalu in the Himalayas at 28,000 feet recently with a couple of old mates from Colorado. He's as tough as they come, seriously tough, and he's also my boss, so a few nerves on this one. But he surfs, he paddles, he goes mountain biking, he goes mountaineering. There's not much he doesn't do, so... I could go on and on and on with the full list of John's achievements, but I think it's better to just jump on in there and talk to the man himself. Here's episode three of the Rapid Ascent podcast with the founder of Rapid Ascent, John Jacoby. John Jacoby, welcome to episode three of the Rapid Ascent podcast. Thanks, Ben. Good to be here. Great to have you here. Now, you've just come back fresh from Makalu. How did you go in Makalu? You're 28,000 feet in the air, which is about 8,000 metres? Uh, yeah, 8,473 metres. So, so fifth highest mountain in the world. And just a little bit bigger than Kosciuszko. <laughs> yes. Yeah, a little bit bigger than Kosciuszko. They're sort of... Um, the 8,000ers, eight, the as they're called, there's 14 of them in the world, and there's sort of five that are in the, I guess, the high category, which is obviously Makalu and the other four above that, and then the other... Uh, eight of them, uh, seven, whatever it is, yeah, um, are quite a bit lower, sort of all between 8,000 and 8,200 metres. So, um, yeah, it was a great experience. Uh, it was something all, I all, I'd always wanted to do, um, was to, I guess, climb a big mountain, an 8,000er or, you know, Everest always, I guess, was appealing, but recently the whole... And it's been very much in the media this year, but with all the crowding and just the seem to, I thought, would take away from the whole experience of being in the mountains. Part of the, the mountain experience is, I guess, being in a wilderness and yeah, hopefully being on your own and enjoying the ambience of the place. Yep. And I think if there's 500 other people around you, then that sort of disappears. So Makalu was pretty attractive, and uh, Billy Madison, one of my old adventure racing mates who I used to race with and against back in the 90s and the early 2000s, emailed me oh, late last year and said he was trying to put together a... This is your mate from Colorado? Yeah, he lives yep. in Colorado, in Vail, and um, he was trying to put together a small team to climb Makalu. So ideally we were after a team of six, we ended up with five of us, um, and I just thought oh that's a pretty good opportunity yeah so had to run it past sam <laughs> my business partner <laughs> that's sam Maffet, the general <laughs> manager of rapid essence will be listening and, in <laughs> and i had to run it past bridget my wife how did uh, you go with that 
Well, they both were pretty good and said, yeah, go for it. Actually, which was tougher, Sam or Bridget? Uh, no, they were both pretty good in this instance. I thought Bridget would be tougher on this yeah. one, um, but she was remarkably relaxed about the whole thing. Probably more relaxed than when we did the trip down to, say, South Georgia. Yep. Um, I don't know whether it was she'd resigned herself to the fact or whether it was a bit of ignorance as to what was going on or what. But That's when you kayaked... Well, circumnavigated yeah, so, South Georgia, Antarctica. Yeah, um, did a paddle circumnavigation there. That was back in 2015. But so, yeah, every, the, everything lined up. The dates weren't too bad to climb Makalu because it's obviously a big undertaking. We're going to be away for basically two months, all of April and all of May. Um, so it's a big chunk of time away. Um, but we worked away around that and... Um, and it was a good little group. I didn't know the other three um, people in the expedition, but Billy knew two of them, and Brad, the other guy, he knew Richard, who was from Peru. Um, and it was, yeah, we were still, I guess, semi-guided. We had a couple of Sherpas with us. Um, but we were, the aim was to do a, a bit ourselves and be a little bit self-sufficient. Um, and how did you go with the team sort of thing? So you're known as an individual sort of endurance athlete. Team uh, thing is not something that you're used to or? Well, I'm certainly, I'm used to it, I guess, through the adventure racing because that's always been in a team situation. But yeah, on Makalu, not so much the team thing, but the thing that worried me, or well, one of the things that worried me the most was having to be patient. Yeah. <laughs> There's a lot of downtime when you're climbing a big mountain and... Well, they but, do say that mountaineering is a lot of sitting around doing not much. Yeah, so. and, and I can vouch for that, that it's correct. Um, so I, I really had to prepare myself mentally, I guess, for saying, OK, I'm going to have a few days sitting in the tent reading books or drinking cups of tea or twiddling my thumbs because of either weather or rest or just acclimatisation, um, all those factors. Um so, yeah, in the end, I handled that probably better than I thought I would. Yep. Um, but it was always good to get up and do something and go, right, today yeah. we're going to move up to camp two or whatever we were going to do. Um, so patience was a, a big thing. So you, was there days when you sort of thought, you know, why can't we get going today when you're supposed to be resting and acclimatising? And... Yeah, to a degree. I've, most of the time it sort of made sense that, Today's a, a day off. We can't we can't do much. Or if you do too much today, then you're going to pay for it down the track. And that's a big thing, I guess, in the high altitude mountaineering is what you do today that might not hurt today, but you definitely pay for it the, the following days after it. Um, so I got I spoke to quite a few people before I went, and the overwhelming advice I guess was go as slow and as easy as you can, and take as much time and just save everything for summit day and yep. it was and in hindsight it was pretty good advice you've just got to um yeah it's it's not a race and i had to keep reminding myself of that um and it's not even really a competition maybe it's a competition between you and the mountain but mountain can always win yeah <laughs> yeah and yet i guess you're flat out just getting your boots on in the morning at that at that sort of altitude Oxygen yeah, and, is very limited. And yeah. that was really the biggest challenge for me prior to this 
the highest I'd been to was four and a half thousand metres during an adventure race in Kyrgyzstan. So I didn't know just the trek into base camp was I was hitting PBs right. <laughs> just about every day um, in terms of altitude. So I didn't know how I was going to react to that. And that's just base camp. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, what was what was the altitude for base camp? So we started the we started the trek in um, at we went down as low as five hundred meters at the beginning, and then base camp ended up being five thousand eight hundred meters, um, and we just it took us about nine days to get there. Um, a few one or two rest days on the way. Um, so in many and, cases for for people listening in, that could be it for them. Like. Yeah, they well, went away to Africa. You know, or, you know. And a great example was our, we had a cook travelling with us who was cooking meals for us. Yep. Um, he was a local Nepalese. He was at base camp, and after three or four days at base camp, he had to get flown out with pulmonary edema. And Just was, at base camp? Yeah, and he was a local. We thought he was going to die. He was in a pretty bad way. And um, that's reduced blood, red blood cell count or oxygen? Uh, well, that's brain. fluid on the fluid. pulmonary edema, fluid on the lungs. Okay. Um, whereas cerebral edema is fluid on the brain, um, you can suffer from either. Um, but usually there's, you know, some telltale warning signs and the the remedies to go down. Um, so that's, yeah, that, can, that's it, a it's, it's a good it's a good indication to show that yeah, it can affect anyone yeah. at any time. Even if you've been to altitude previously, it can still sometimes hit you sort of unaware where you've gone. Oh well, I've been to six thousand meters before. I'll be fine. Yep doesn't quite work like that so hearing a story like that it's quite scary i mean to go back to that question about getting approval from bridget um were yourself and bridget aware of these types of dangers oh yeah absolutely well i certainly was (laughs) (laughs) didn't tell bridget i probably didn't tell bridget too much (laughs) i think she knows yeah Um, she knows in hindsight (laughs) uh but it's as you're going along it's the whole time I guess it's that self-assessment that a lot of that skill maybe comes from an athletic or an endurance background where you're always saying, oh, am I feeling all right? Or, oh, geez, this part of me is feeling terrible or I've got a headache or whatever it might be. And so, you know, I had a couple of bad days getting to base camp and the day that I got to base camp was one of the worst days that I I had. I was, just felt terrible. Um, and then... You know, I got I got there and took a couple of, some Diamox and took a couple of ibuprofen and by the next morning I was feeling a lot better. Um, so it's it's that continual self monitoring. Yeah. Um, and then we had another instance where we we're, we're heading up to we left base camp to go up to camp two to do a rotation to help the acclimatisation. We literally only got an hour and a half out of base camp and we all looked at each other going, oh, we all just feel terrible. Yep. We turned around and actually having some serious doubts. Yeah, we just we just felt as if we were weak and slow and not good. And we all turned around and went back to base camp, and then actually went further down the mountain to try and recover. Because the problem with Makalu Base Camp, it's I think it's the highest base camp out of any of the eight thousand meter peaks, and it's almost too high that you even resting at base camp, you can't really fully recover. How high is base camp too? Base camp at Makalu is. Yep. but most of the others 8,000 metre peaks are probably more down at 5,000, 5,200 on the Everest 5.2 which is about the limit they say of 
being able to your body being able to fully recover and recuperate. You go any higher, and you're just getting worn down and worn down. So that thin layer of oxygen that we get, uh, it starts to run out at about five thousand. Well, it's just a critical level where it becomes so low that even when you're resting and sleeping, the body obviously right. just can't rebuild and regenerate cells and build muscle and do all those sorts of things. Um, I came back from the trip having lost about five kilos and lost yeah. all my muscle and lost all my strength and I was probably the lightest I've been for 30 years. <laughs> Actually watching you walk back into the office was quite funny. <laughs> yeah, I was, I was horrified. Like you'd been I... to a POW camp, not Makalu. <laughs> <laughs> well, I was horrified when I stepped on the scales at the airport uh, on the way home and I, I think I was fully clothed and just had a big feed and I was 79 kilos. It's like, oh, jeepers, that's not good. <laughs> Is that the lightest you've been in a but, long time? Yeah, as I said, that's the lightest I've been for probably 30 years. Back to your racing weight? Or? Yeah, well, below racing weight, really. Yeah. And it's at that point where, as as you say, previously I'd, I'd got down to that level when I was training really hard for coast to coast back in the late 80s. And at that point, I just, all my strength just disappeared. It was, and... And when I realised that, then I thought, okay, it's time to... I was probably on a reasonably strict diet, high-carb, low-fat diet, and yeah, from that point <laughs> onwards, I just go, no, I'll just eat everything. Yeah, okay. Anything and everything and try and put, try and keep weight on. And you've put weight back on since? You've been back for about a month? Yeah, I'm back to normal weight now. Oh, really? <laughs> <laughs> Didn't take too long. Bridget's been beefing you up. <laughs> I've been eating like a horse. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah. you, I guess... <clears throat> Yeah, what happened, you know, you had some doubts at base camp too. How did you guys get over that and sort of keep moving? Keep Well, it was, um, we'd already done that point that I spoke about just previously. We'd already done a couple of rotations up to camp two, which is at 6,600 metres, so getting quite high. Um, and we're really pretty much getting ready for the summit push. Um, and we'd always, in our original plan, our it was always to go back down to lower base camp at 4,700 metres to try and recover and improve our strength a little bit. So when we turned around and because of feeling so weak and poor, we thought, okay, well, this is, we've just got to do it. It's a, it's a horrible walk down to lower base camp. It's just six, seven hours through this just non-stop boulders and rocky terrain and moraine and pretty unpleasant so we weren't really looking forward to it but we just knew it was something we had to do mm-hmm. and so we ended up sitting down at lower base camp for a couple of days um, and then the summit window came up we got a good weather forecast and thought well you ide- just go for it. ideally we should stay there maybe three or four days yep. but when the weather window's there you've got to take it because you might not get another one so we had that forecast and so to get from lower base camp, it was a day to get back up to true base camp, and then another day to camp two, and then another day to camp three, and then the next day was summit day. Right. So so from start to finish, you know, from the day you get to, to Kathmandu? Uh, yep. Uh, from to summit day, how long in between there? How many oh, days? Wow. Um, well, we arrived in Kathmandu on the... 3rd of April, and we summoned on the 16th of May. Right. There's so, a massive preparation. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and then even because we came across that weather window quite quickly and we were down low, 
Um, we couldn't sort of have any rest days in between, which in hindsight might have been a good thing. So we had, I guess, four days, four or five consecutive days of climbing, going higher and higher each day. So at Camp 3, that's at 7,500 metres, so that's starting to get... That's where just drinking a... <laughs> taking a sip of water out of your drink bottle, you get puffed. There's an effort, if you yeah. Don't, if you don't do it the right way. If you take two gulps instead of one and you forget to breathe for a... And dehydration, is that a quite a big thing on the mountain? Yeah, just dehydration and nutrition. It's, and again, that was part of the motivation of the of the of doing the climb was I'd always been fascinated by the effects that altitude have on people and the different effects. Um, and one of, uh, that's, you know, always well publicised is suppression of your appetite and you don't feel yep. like eating, you don't feel like drinking. And I, I'm pretty pretty good eater yeah <laughs> and, so uh, even you and I, and I thought oh no, no i can't possibly suppress my appetite yeah but it does it happened oh yeah i was up at six or well, camp two which as i said was six 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 and camp three at seven five yeah i didn't feel like eating i guess at all. it's is it equivalent to sort of running on the treadmill for 10 minutes and at a sort of moderate pace and being it's, out of breath and not wanting probably, to eat it's probably more like you know <clears throat> doing a, a massive session of 2400s reps and trying to eat in the middle of that yeah you just do so not feel like it your body's you saying no yeah this is not not going to end well yeah <laughs> but you still have to eat don't and you so. well you keep telling yourself i should be eating i've got to eat and then on summit day um doing anything is just such a hassle you know just to drink is a hassle just to get food out of your pocket is a hassle it's either frozen or you just don't feel like eating or you know, I took two insulated, or one thermos and one insulated drink bottle. My thermos sort of stayed liquid. I drank half my insulated bottle and then the other half froze. So you go, well, I can't drink anymore. Yeah. Um, and and some of days, 18, 18 hours on the go. So it's a, 18 it's a hour day. Yeah, so it's yeah. a pretty long, long session. Um, and yeah, with not much drink and, and plus on top of all of that it's a really really dry atmosphere up there just no moisture whatsoever you wake up in the middle of the night your mouth sort of stuck together yeah it's so dry so it's um, not only the physiology those aspects that are quite difficult and challenging but um what about the environment i mean did you have giant seracs sort of surrounding you and ice falls and the, the danger of um, yeah well Macaloo's, avalanches things like that well Macaloo is an interesting one in that it's regarded as one of the harder eight thousands to climb um, from a technical point of view, but in terms of its risk factors, um, its risk factors are quite low. There's not much chance of avalanche, and you don't have to go through the ice fall like they do on Everest, where you know it's basically Russian you, roulette. Yeah, isn't if it? you're there at the wrong time, yeah. the wrong place, you can get collected. A lot of people um, have been killed in that section, mm, haven't they? Yeah. So. Um, so in that aspect, Makalu's I guess relatively safe, but. They, they all say it's a harder mountain to climb. Personally, I didn't think it was that hard from a technical point of view because yep. nowadays they've, every hard section they put fixed ropes on so you can clip onto your rope and jumo your way up and away you go. It takes, it takes a lot yeah. of effort because there's some big sections where it's not just going up <coughs> a steep snow slope, it's a combination of snow and rock and ice. and So you, you are literally having to climb up and scramble up that and it's always that's always tricky when you've got crampons over a rock and yeah do you mean hard up. in terms of technical difficulty or in terms of endurance 
as an uh, Well, both. Both. So even the the day where we climbed from Camp 2 to Camp 3, so 6.6 six to 7.5, that's a really solid day. That probably was a 10-hour day, yep. just climbing up this rock buttress that's, as I said, just covered in bits of snow and bits of ice. Um, so it's interesting. You've got plenty to think about. You don't, you don't yeah. get bored. Uh, <laughs> that's for sure. Uh, and if you know if there weren't fixed ropes up there, then yeah, it'd be it'd be quite tricky climbing. So these fixed ropes they've been there since when the sixties, seventies. Well, they they fix them each year. They put in okay. a new rope. Yep. Um, and you can see old ropes there, but they get degraded through blizzards through and UV light and sunshine yep. and all that sort of thing. Um, so. So if you were to uncover the mountain from snow and ice and well, the rest, it'd just be covered in, in ropes. <laughs> yeah, it would be. Yeah. And, you know, again, in the in the media, you hear all the talk of the rubbish and um, both oxygen bottles and general rubbish and human waste and all of that problems on um, Everest. But Makalu was was pretty good. It was pretty clean, I thought. There's, you know, there's a few little bits of pieces lying around, but on the whole, it was, it was pretty clean. So there's a lot less traffic on Makalu, isn't there, compared yeah. to Everest? You're yeah. Talking like... Well, you generally... For every 10 people on Everest, there's probably one on Makalu. Would that be about right? Uh, yeah, well, I think Everest this year had 350 permits issued on the Nepalese side, uh-huh. plus the plus whatever was issued on the Chinese side, which was less. Um, Makalu, I think, this year had 49 permits issued, and that was a busy year. Normally, yep. it's 20 to 30. And so. it's kind of... It's not quite as expensive in terms of... The net cost, I guess, of no. The, obviously, Everest's the most expensive. Yeah. Um, but you can. Is that purely demand, or is it? Uh, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. They it's not can. like you need extra. No, equipment can, and things and the special. Government can, the government can just charge as much as they yeah. want. Um, and then yeah, the the cost side of it's not quite as bad as it's portrayed in the media. You can you can do it pretty cheaply, which we did. Um, or you can you can pay 60, 70 grand on Everest. On Makalu, you could pay 30 or 40 grand maybe, but and you'd have your hand held and you have smoked salmon for dinner <laughs> at, at base camp and the cheese and caviar and, in the afternoon. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You get well looked after. Yeah. Um, I've heard of people taking you know 10, 12 Sherpas with them. Yeah. Well, we 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 had saw other people with you know two Sherpas and a guide, like a Western guide. And then two Nepalese Sherpas, and almost carrying them up the mountain. So there's that, which I don't really agree with. It sort of takes a while. They just shouldn't be there. Yeah. So this is, you know, you not to pick on the Americans, but maybe your American executive that has a little bit of cash and almost dreamt about scaling Everest. Yeah, and it drops 130 grand on. Mm. And nowadays, you you're right. If you're I would have said moderately fit and got plenty of money, you can you can do it. You can easily climb it. That's just, Everest and Makalu. Yeah, any of them. Yep. You know, you just buy the rope up, buy lots of oxygen, yeah. and buy lots of Sherpas to carry all the oxygen for you. Yeah. And you could go up the mountain relatively comfortably. So did but that, if but yeah. if something goes wrong, then you that's when that's things, where the money that's when things hit the fan. Okay. And you know, somewhere doesn't matter how many Sherpas are around a person if they're still not used to the mm. mountains and they're not experienced and 
you know, their crampon falls off or it comes loose or they, I don't know, haven't eaten enough food or whatever it might be. Um, if they get into a bad situation, quite often that becomes irreversible, even if they have got support around them to, yeah. to help them. Um, and 85, 90% of the deaths on all the big mountains are on descending, not going up. Yep. And part of that's the mental game. I think a lot of people who aren't prepared for it get to the top and go, oh, that's it, I'm done. Got to the top, I've, I've won. Yeah. And, you know, and it's take, only take just selfie and they're only halfway there. Down yep. is where it all goes wrong. It all begins, yeah. yeah. And, and down climbing, especially if it's technical, down climbing is a lot harder than going up. Is that because of the adulation, I guess, of getting to the top and you kind of, there, I'm there, you know, mission complete. You're yeah, a little th- bit more relaxed coming down and probably well, in a little bit of a rush to get down. And you, I think it's all those things. It can certainly people's mental preparation. If they, if they think the top's the top and the pinnacle and once they've got to the top, then they don't have to do anything more, then that's certainly a major issue. Um, if they've spent all their bickies getting to the top and they're exhausted, then you quite often hear people on the mountain dying of exhaustion. Well, people don't die from exhaustion. They may be exhausted and then they make stupid decisions and mm. well, not the right decisions and or they just stop and then end up dying of hypothermia. So there's all those sorts of things. Um, yeah, and, and as you say, maybe a rush to get down or trying to get down too quickly. And yeah. Just, making making bad bad errors i know the traffic on the way down everest is a massive issue but uh makalu much traffic no no we had yeah. even the day we summited i think oh there might have been 10 or a dozen of us on the going for the summit that day and there was a little bit of traffic right near the top and you just let them go and yeah then I was the last one to leave on the at the summit. I was have it to myself. Virtually. Yeah. So you go. Oh, that's pretty cool. Magnificent. Yeah. I guess if we can take a step back, so you're getting towards the summit. Uh, is it a is it a narrow sort of ridge line that you're walking along? You come like up a you come up a, you're a, you come up a pretty tough steep section called the French Couloir, which is again a combination of snow and rock and ice, which is quite tricky climbing. Um, but again, you've got a fixed rope, and then you pop out onto what summit ridge I guess they call it and it starts off relatively flat and then it just gets sharper and sharper and then you climb up a really steep pinch to what they call the false summit it looks from the angle we're approaching it it looks like the summit you know, oh there's the top that's it but it's just a mirage yeah it's just a mirage <laughs> and the true summit's maybe another 100 meters further on 100 meters virtually horizontal you go obviously going up a little bit um, but at that little section the the ridge line you can literally stick your chin over the top and look it's two thousand meters down into tibet straight down yeah it's just and and you you're traversing that ridge line so close to the to the area you can literally um, see tibet like oh yeah some of the villages yeah oh not the villages but i got to the top and i was i was using my phone for pictures and i got a barrage of text messages saying welcome to china <laughs> Really? It's the, the only time my phone worked for <laughs> eight weeks. So a perfect signal <laughs> yeah, on the top sig- of Makalu. Great signal on the top of Makalu. <laughs> so if anything's going to go wrong, you want it to go wrong about, about <laughs> there. Yeah, yeah, that's right. <laughs> only problem is you have to take your gloves off to get your phone to work. <laughs> <laughs> so you managed to hold onto your phone the whole time? 
Yeah, yeah, the phone was really I mean, good. I've, um, I've seen your pictures, and you did a slideshow with us at Rapid Ascent and all the crew when you got back, and they were amazing images. But I'm amazed that you didn't drop your phone. Yeah, well, I didn't drop it, and I was pretty worried a couple of times when I was on some pretty steep slopes and pulled the phone out, and I didn't have it on a lanyard, which maybe I should have. Um, but the phone did well. I, I learned a lot about battery management in cold weather. <laughs> um, but it, it did well. and Gets flatter uh, quicker in cold weather? or Yeah, basically the, the trick was just turn your phone off, just power it right, right. down um, in the cold environment. Even overnight when we're sleeping, you turn it off. Yep. Um, and that would preserve it quite well. And then on summit day when it was really cold, just kept it in your chest pocket to give it a bit of warmth. Um, but no, the, the pictures came out pretty well. And... Oh, they were magnificent. I'll we'll mm. have to post a few after this episode, but or when this episode gets published. But um, was it everything you imagined? I guess. Or did you get to the top and go, "Wow, this is"? Yeah, it was. It was certainly pretty cool getting to the top. Um, and we had a fantastic day, and it was good weather. It was supposed to be a bit windier than it actually was. So, um, when there's no wind or little, little or no wind. Um, the temperature doesn't feel as bad. The sun was up. Um, we could, I could take my gloves off on the summit and take some pictures for a short period of time, which was good. What sort of temp uh, up there? That uh, it was probably about minus 10, minus oh, 15. Right. It was supposed to be a bit colder, more like minus 25, but I don't think it got that cold. Yeah. Um, just because of the lack of wind. Uh, but yeah, we got to the point where there's you're, you're literally above all the clouds. You look over into on the China-Tibet side and all of that's just covered in cloud and you're way, way above it. Yeah. And beautiful views back over to Everest and Lhotse, which are only 18 kilometres away, but they feel as if you can... Oh, you them. can actually see the Lhotse face, which is near... No, Everest, well, you right? can't see the Lhotse face because we're on the other side of it, but you can see Lhotse, the peak, and yep. the South Coal and Everest Yep. Um, from the from the other side, so from the southeast side, I guess. Um, Do they look like they're at about the same altitude? It's like when you go to yeah Mount Hotham and well because <laughs> Mount because Mount Lots- actually looks smaller. Yeah, because Lotsey's actually closer. Lotsey's in a way almost looks bigger than Everest, um, just because it's close to you. But they look as if you just put your hand out and touch them. Yep. Uh, they they certainly don't feel as or don't look as if they're eighteen kilometres away. And I guess after that. Okay, there's a bit of celebration and a few photos and things. You got a you got a moment to yourself on the mountain. Yeah, we were probably on the summit for half an hour because the weather was so oh, good. Actually, you know, you could have we could hang around there for a little bit. And as I said, it was initially when we got up there, there were a few others up there. And the the summit on Makalu is room for one person only. It's yeah, <laughs> it's just one tiny little peak. Um, so you sort of had to wait a little bit off the side. Um, but it was it was no, good pushing and shoving at the top. No, Otherwise, no, it's no, no, it was all pretty low key. It was good. <laughs> it's a fast track straight down back into Tibet. Yes. <laughs> and then the was it a case of I can't wait to get off this mountain after that, or the journey continued for you? Well, yeah, the descent. You know, I was acutely aware that the descent is everything, and that's potentially the hard bit or the the scary part. Um, we made a pretty good descent down to camp three originally i was hoping that we might have descended all the way to camp two on summit day but we walked into camp three and i said to um billy and a few other people i've adventure raced with it was like day five of a non-stop adventure race it was that 
period where no one could put a sentence together. Yeah. No one could answer a prop answer a question. Uh, we're all just in la la land. So it was like, oh, well, we've got to stop here and have a sleep and a rest, and we'll head down the next morning, which we did. So from camp three, we descended all the way to base camp the next day. And and both. All the way the next yeah. day, right? Yeah. Just one go. Yeah. And we were absolutely exhausted getting back to base camp. Just now with the quads, in the quads just burning. Well, it's interesting. People were asking me how tired or how exhausting was it. Not, it's nothing like the same. Nothing like the feeling of being knackered in an adventure race or in a, running a marathon or doing an Ironman, hmm. where there's that. Well, it's certainly a level of exhaustion, but here was same next level. It's like everything was just empty. Right. Legs, legs were empty. So, you know, you're halfway down a rappel. Yeah. Just hanging up a piece of rope, usually pretty easy. You've got to stop halfway down a rappel and have a rest. It's like, I don't, what's wrong with me? Why do I have to <laughs> do this? Or just plodding down a hill in fairly firm snow. It's not as if you're plugging into, you know, knee deep snow or anything like that. And you've just got to stop and rest on your ice axe or rest on your poles and go, oh, I need a rest. So, a totally different feeling to. Yeah. Say like an Iron Man. Yeah. yeah. It's yeah. So you get this you got an empty tank, uh, you're out of breath. Can you feel it um well, going, muscular sort of going down, you've not so much out of breath because going down's always easier than just going getting up. better and better and better. Um where you just I think the I think just your overall fatigue's the limiting factor. Um but yeah, just total exhaustion. And then the next day we slept in base camp overnight and had a little bit of a celebration. Um, but the next day, literally, you felt hungover. It felt as if you'd been really? on a massive bend of the night before. <laughs> we just walked around in a daze in base camp the next day. Right. Literally didn't know which way was up. Oh, well, we sort of knew which way was up. And we just thought, yeah, all I want to do is sit down and eat. So we did a fair bit of that. I guess good good point um, to get to some of the practicalities, I guess, of being on the mountain, um, eating, drinking, even sleeping. How did you go sleeping at night? That's generally pretty 28, good. 28,000 feet or near. near generally pretty it. good. You don't want to take sleeping tablets because they're not good for you at altitude. Um, so I never did that. Um, you certainly woke up as a... Uh, there's a syndrome or a condition where you literally wake up in the middle of the night out of breath. Right. Your, your body almost forgets to breathe or has forgotten to take a deep enough breath. So you wake up in a bit of a panic, going, <gasps> right. gasping for air. And that's a bit disconcerting initially. I imagine that's but, pretty frightening. Yeah. Like similar but, to maybe a panic attack or... Yeah, I guess so. Or people but, with sleep apnea. Yeah, sure. but you've, I guess you begin to get used to it because it started happening even in base camp. You'd get All right. So there's that aspect of it. Um, you feel like someone's choking you or you just... No, just as if you've forgotten <coughs> to breathe. And there's that desperate urge to gasp for air. So there's something is, deep which... in your unconscious mind that mm, yes. you're saying, hey, wake up, we're still here, kind yeah. of thing. And it's similar to what I was saying before, that you know, if you take two gulps of water and don't take a breath in between, you end up gasping for air. Just and kind of choking and, on the and water. And camp three, it's seven and a half hours. Just going to the toilet's exhausting. Yeah. <laughs> so you skip on going to the toilet. Well, sometimes, sometimes you've got to go. <laughs> <laughs> and that was all. I mean, you're basically you're on your own when it comes time to 
when nature calls and those types of things. Yeah, well, even on... Uh, I mean, you have to be quite careful of falling down. Even on the summit it. day, I was... As we were climbing, we left for the summit at 8.30 in the evening and, I don't know, it might have been one or two in the morning when we were climbing up, I was, had the urge of nature to <laughs> go and, you know, do what I had to do. Yeah. And it was one of the few spots where it was a moderate gradient and you could get off the get off the rope and be relatively safe. And, Without falling down a thousand foot crevasse. Or yeah. Um, so, yeah, I was sitting out there in the middle of the night with my, <laughs> pants, my pants down with my ass into the, into the wind. <laughs> And then nothing happens. It's like can't That's... can't do anything. And I don't know whether it was the cold air or the cold atmosphere <laughs> that distracts you or puts you off. And... It's probably a toilet break you won't forget. <laughs> yeah. Um, but and I should we should add that you have a you have a big suit on too, don't you? Yeah, it's a big down suit, down which has suit. got special what they call drop seat pants. So you can you've got oh, a right. zip that you can effectively. That's a trapdoor. Open a hatch or a trapdoor. <laughs> you don't have to totally undress. All oh, right. Yeah. That's a quite handy feature. Yeah, it's a very handy <laughs> feature. You don't want don't want to start to get frostbite in those no, regions. Absolutely. And even drinking water. I mean, how do you stop water from freezing? Well, you constantly uh, pouring hot drinks into your into your flasks. You can't have a bladder because obviously the tube will freeze in yeah. five probably five to ten minutes. Um, so you yeah either thermos flasks or insulated sort of Nalgene type bottles. Um, but yeah, you always definitely have to put in boiling or yeah. at least hot water or hot fluids to start with. And a constant battle with temperature the whole way. Yeah, and again, even with gloves, you know, as I said, we had really good weather on summit day, but <laughs> I was quite nervous about what gloves set up to wear, so I didn't really want to lose any fingers. And although you can got some, I had some heavy duty mitts that are super warm. As soon as you put the mitts on, you can't do anything. You yep. literally, you can't open a carabiner. You can't put your jumar on a rope. You, you, it's like having no hands at all. Yeah. So I put them on for thirty seconds and then took them off again and said, uh, they're useless. Right. So, so and but luckily, the weather that we had allowed me just to have some heavy gloves on with a thin liner underneath, and that still gives you some dexterity. So you can actually move your fingers and yeah, and you can you can do some fine motor skills. Um, some basic things like take a photo and get your iPhone out and oh, I've take yeah, to take a photo, especially with the iPhone. Definitely had to take my heavy glove off. Yep, and could just do it with a light liner. So I haven't got that many photos from summit day. <laughs> I was going to say at the summit, did you call Bridget when you started getting a signal? No. Nah. No, no, no had, other, had other things on my mind, <laughs> and I like had just a little uh, in-reach um, iridium in-reach device. It's only about the, it's only slightly bigger than a mobile phone, but that but basically lets you send satellite text messages, which is what I used to okay. keep in touch with Bridget, which was pretty good. It's yeah, we really were getting good. updates quite regularly on Instagram. I yeah, think well, there was, was a window there where we didn't hear much and. Well, Everyone was, was getting of, a bit concerned. It was part concerned, of my leave but... conditions. I had to send, send a message daily, you see. Oh, right. <laughs> <laughs> Even if it was just, yeah, I'm here. <laughs> checking in each day. Check, that's right, I had to check in. Is that for Sam or Bridget? No, no, Bridget. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I got back to base camp in one day. Which is, is that is that going quick? Or is that oh, no, not really. A lot easier going down than going up. Yeah, <laughs> right. <laughs> you could definitely, you know, it was... Well, relatively easy, I guess, to go from Camp 3 down to Base Camp, but to go from Base Camp up to Camp 3 in yeah. one day would be, uh, well, no one would do it. 
maybe a few of the gun Nepalese Sherpas might do it in a day. Yeah. But they're sort of next level. And there's, yeah, there's no requirements to sort of go slow, similar to diving, where you have to go slow coming up. You have no. to go slow coming down. No. Nothing like that. No. Get, get into thick air as quick as you can. Yeah. So it got to base camp. Was it at this point where you're kind of like, I just want to get home and have a roast chicken for dinner? Or? Oh, not really. We had a couple Still of days. The experience. We had a couple of days rest at base camp, and then we sort of packed up, and we we're all happy to walk out, uh, which is about a four-day trek, four or five-day trek out. Everyone else was getting choppers, but the trek out was beautiful. So it was almost one of the highlight, or it was definitely a highlight of the trip. It was spectacular terrain. It's one of the valleys that's just not visited by Westerners. We virtually had the place to ourselves. Just nice little tea houses every so Is often. That purely because it's a nine-day trek just to get there kind of thing? Yeah, I don't or know why it doesn't, uh, doesn't get more people. It's there is a loop section that you can do but if you do the loop it would be pretty challenging for trekkers um, otherwise it would be an in and out the same way but it's beautiful valley these you know, big glacier carved valleys and they're all covered in forests just 100% rhododendrons and all the rhododendrons are out flowering and big waterfalls and some beautiful snow covered ridge lines that you have to traverse and it was an amazing trek and where are those glaciers leading to? Is there a river in Tibet? or? Uh, well, we're on the Nepalese side, so they're all yeah. coming down, flowing into India. I guess they yeah. uh, flow out into the Bay of Bengal, near okay. Calcutta, eventually. So yeah. it stretches that far and wide. Yeah. yeah. Um, uh, so totally different to sort of anything you've done in terms of you know, your traditional Ironman and uh, you sort of oh, yeah, multi-sport from... events. Yeah, from a competition side, totally different. And even from other expeditions like trips I've done in New Zealand or the South Georgia paddle that we did, a little bit different to that in that it was more... Um, it was probably a little bit more hand-holding. You weren't totally out there on your own, making your own decisions all the time, which is, to me, is part of the fun and the enjoyment and the challenge of doing yeah. these types of trips is is the decision making and the risk management side of it and saying well should we go now or should we wait a day or yeah. are we going to go this way we're going to go route A or route B or whatever it might mm. be climbing the 8000 as you follow the rope and go to the top yeah someone's kind of holding your hand mm. not yeah not as much as Everest but you're kind of just following the yeah it's a, following the lead it's a different experience it's a whole different scene it's not it's not normal mountaineering, what I call normal in inverted commas. Yep. You know, I think I think there'd be a lot of New Zealanders who do what I call normal mountaineering, climbing mountains on yeah. their own. Yeah. In the New Zealand Alps, would be horrified at what goes on on the eight thousand metre peaks. Right. In terms of just oh, logistics just and yeah, logistics and hand holding and yeah, not being proper mountaineering. And so, would it be your preference to go on your own? Or with a small party that... Yeah, yeah. It would be. Even if it was a smaller peak. Um, I was going to say, even at that altitude? Well, it's, unless you... I probably have, I'm probably not skilled enough to do a, an unguided... Or, yeah, an unguided one to an 8,000 metre peak on a difficult route. Um, just wouldn't have that skill, but you can certainly yeah. still go and pl climb plenty of five and six and 7,000 metre peaks in Nepal. Um, and have the mountain to yourself and 
and have it as much or as little help as you want. You can, yeah. You can pay for as much or as little help as you want. And you said at the start that it's sort of been a lifelong thing for you that you've wanted to do something like this. What's got in the way of doing that in the past? Is it sort of uh, you're just too busy with your yeah, I probably events, I probably haven't made it happen myself. And then when Billy sent me the email saying, oh, he was going to do a trip, he was looking for someone to join him, I thought, right, that was, that was enough impetus to yeah. give me a kick up the backside and say, right, I better go. So that's a big yeah. part of <clears throat> doing these events is, is obviously the mateship. Yeah, and oh, it's it's still very much the challenge of the of the undertaking or the, there's that element of the unknown, I guess, out there that... You know that's the attraction. What's what's the next day going to be like? Are we going to get pounded by the weather? Is it going to be a storm? Or are we going to have huge seas if we're out out paddling or whatever it might be? That's that's the attraction of, I guess, adventure or expedition. Yeah, is is that sense of unknown? So that's that that's kind of what triggered it for you early on. Is that sense of unknown? Uh, no, I guess in my very early days when I I always had that sort of adventurous feel it was more just the exploration side of it yeah oh i want to go and see what's around the corner new climate so, new geography yeah new that was always appealing yeah or you look at it on a map and you go oh i'd like to actually go there i can see it on the map but yeah what's it really like i have to admit every time i come into the op- office you're looking at maps so, <laughs> so i yeah. can see that you have an obsession with maps yeah and is that that's what you do for fun well that's true yeah. yeah and i certainly had an obsession with maps in my in my youth yeah and uh, that ad- continues to that the advent of google's yeah made it even worse so google earth, google just, earth yeah. it's like netflix for you it's yeah just that's a... right it's just like oh gee where can i go now <laughs> <laughs> and you grew up in the suburbs in melbourne that's yes, right in melbourne yeah. yeah so i guess and that was really why my first adventures um were there from a very early age I, my mum or my parents were, were pretty good but my mum especially was let me pretty much do what I wanted yeah and um was your dad an adventurer not what, really what was he, his was, occupation? he was he was big into the scouting movement and scouts so yep. he was you know I guess um encouraging of it but no my first little trip was we we're living in uh East Melbourne and my grandparents lived in Surrey Hills or my grandmother and I said to my mum, I want to ride my scooter, I was, I think, six or seven, over to my grandmother's at Surrey Hills. At Surrey Hills, which yeah. is about I don't know, might solid be 12k or something 12, like yeah. that, maybe 15, something like that. Um, and she said, oh, okay, you can ride. So off I went on my own. Yep. <laughs> and I got to within about 400 metres of my grandmother's house and I turned around and saw that mum had been following me in the car. And I cracked it. Absolutely <laughs> cracked it. I've heard this story. So you made stamped, your mum. Stamped up and down and said, right, you can take me home again. I'm going to do Thought it on again. my own. <laughs> Thought it properly this You're time. You're not allowed to follow me. <laughs> <laughs> so mum learned her lesson early on that she had to leave me alone. Yeah. And then, was... I, and then I went on and we did, with a few mates from Scouts, you know, rode from Melbourne down to Portsea when I was 10 and... And rode around Tasmania for three that, weeks when that's we were a, 13. A solid 120k, Melbourne 100, to yeah, 100k, 100k. Yeah, and then around Tassie for three weeks, just me and another mate when we were 13. I have, I've heard we, that story too. Yeah, and we, used, we used to get rounded up by yeah. some, some locals in caravan parks saying, where, where are you your pa- parents? <laughs> <laughs> it was good, you could do it back then. Yeah, well, this day and age, probably not. Well, probably you, wouldn't, not you wouldn't even be allowed on the plane. 
I guess, yeah. Because you wouldn't have a parent to meet you or a guardian to meet you at the other end. Yeah. We just jumped on a plane with the bikes and rode off into the sunset. Yeah. (laughs) It was great. Do you lament that things have sort of changed? Oh, yeah. Yeah, very much so. And, And I guess that's part of... Do you notice that with your boys, Harry and Ferg? Yeah. There's, there's a lot of red tape. There's a lot of restrictions. Oh, there's, yeah, it's just everything's just gone soft. Yeah, the world's gone a little bit soft. And is the, is your endurance sort of activities um, rubbing off on Harry and Ferg? Uh, Are they into that? <laughs> I'd like to think so, but I'm. I know they play I'm footy, not, and I'd like to think so, but I'm not convinced about yeah. that. Hopefully, a little bit. I'm certainly trying to expose them to it and um, to the I've nature come, side of exploring, yeah, travel, I've adventure. I've come to realization that. When they get to teenage type years, you can't push anything on them. You've just got to give them a taste and hopefully yeah. they might come back to it or it rubs off. Well, if you force anything onto life. a teenager, it doesn't yeah. work out well. So. Fraught with danger, <laughs> isn't it? Um, yeah, you just got to try and make it fun, fun and interesting. Were you yearning from a young age to get out of the city? Like, do you call yourself a city boy? Uh, no. Well, Malvern, really. Malvern in those days wasn't entirely city. Oh, kind of... yeah, we used to muck around down in Gardner's Creek and do things like that but no I was yeah I wouldn't say I was ever really a city boy I was always happy out in the out in the bush or the country and ended up doing agricultural science at uni so I always had a bit of a bit of a thing about the bush and the country and then you ended up working in a bank yes how did that come about yeah that was was by accident science degree then bank (laughs) well the I ended up working for NAB and they take on a certain number of rural grads each year because they're quite they're one of the bigger Agri- um, lenders to the agricultural sector so they wanted people trained in agriculture to then I guess have some knowledge oh, of right. lending money Someone's to the farmers, to the farmers. Yeah. so I had some quite good jobs with NAB um, just helping the farmers and being their managers and they were great good people to deal with and yeah really real innovators and clever people but super down to earth and so, a bit of trouble involved no, we That's always right, had, so we had, stuck in the office. luckily I had a job where we had sort of the top-notch farmers and they were, they were cutting edge. They always, they always made money. They were good. Yeah. Yeah. I know the, um, I'm from Ballarat and I know that the kids at Grammar, all their parents are farmers, so yeah. Yeah, no, when good. they get it right, they make a lot of money. Yeah, I know good. they do it tough in different areas and the drought and all, all the rest, but yeah, it's good, generational good farmers and get it right. good dirt, they, yeah. uh, they generally... Do pretty well. Any aspirations to go into farming? No. During that time? No. <laughs> <laughs> definitely not. Flat no. <laughs> no. Definitely not. And how long in the bank before you started Rapid Ascent? Uh, so I was about 10 years, a bit over 10 years in the bank. And then I was, uh, Bridget had her own business running a pharmacy. So I looked after, I was home dad, looked after the boys when they were sort of from naught to five years old. And it was during that time that we started Rapid Ascend in 2004, 2005, started happening. And then it was just a bit of a part-time gig. It started part-time. It started with the Anaconda Adventure Race. Yeah, well, it actually started before... Yes, Anaconda Adventure Race was the first race, but it it started um, more trying to get the Keen Adventure Race happening, which was a four-day adventure race down around the Great Ocean Road area um, but we thought we'd better do something smaller before we did the Keen race which was a, a bigger event in terms of distance and difficulty but a lower number of competitors 
so we put on the Anaconda race down at Lawn, and which was a smaller event distance wise. Yeah. But we had nine hundred people turn up for the first race, and, was, and what was that? That was a swim, run, swim, run, paddle, and mountain bike. Oh, so similar and, to yeah, yeah, same as the same. format for Augusta. Yeah, that exactly we currently the same. Do. Exactly the same. It was part of the Augusta was sort of one of the next races to come along. We'll come back to Augusta at the end. I just wanted to talk about that. We'll be putting in a, a team this year for Rapid Ascent. But um, uh, just back to Makalu for a brief second. Are you planning to do something like this again, mountaineering? Would you oh, do Everest or would you do, I don't think I'd do K2? Everest. Or? I don't think I'd do Everest. Maybe not K2. I'd be tempted, I'd be tempted to do try one of the lower 8,000 metre peaks, maybe without oxygen just to see what that's like. Um, but as I said before, I think my, my real preference or passion would be to go and do a, a lesser-known peak that's just, and there's hundreds of them in Nepal, that you could just go and climb and have to yourself and enjoy that mountain-type experience where you don't expect or don't see anybody else out there and it sort of yeah. feels like, oh, this is my mountain. I've got it. Yeah. This is, it's up to me to, Back try, to and, the... try and get to the top. The feeling that um, Edmund Hillary may have had yeah. the first yeah, time well, he went back up to, Everest. Just back to that sort of sense and feeling of adventure. Yeah. Where you, and I know you're a massive fan of Ernest Shackleton. I am a big fan of Shackleton, who yes. went across Antarctica. First yeah. one to... They walked across? No, well, that was they were trying to. They never yeah. got to do that. Um, never, yeah. But, yeah, big fan of Shackleton's. And a big fan of even all the Australian explorers, too. Back in the early day, and Flinders, and Bass, and Cook, and Stuart, and Eyre, and all those guys, they were, they were just hardcore. Yeah. <laughs> you, re- you read the accounts of what they went through, it's just astounding. In the early days. Yeah, amazing that they even survived. Well, some of them didn't, but the good ones generally did. And such a rough and rugged and hostile yeah, territory. Yeah, they, they just took so much for granted that yeah. that's just the way you do things, and if you have to... You know, and you have half a pound of flour for a week and yeah. a bag of sugar, then that's all you eat. <laughs> off you go. <laughs> that's off you go. A couple of gum leaves type thing. And... Yeah, exactly. It's it's just staggering that they, you know, suffered so badly in terms of health and nutrition and general living conditions, yet they still managed to forge ahead and discover these things and push on and cover, you know, 20 or 30 miles in a day, yeah. carrying <clears> all the crap that they carried with them. Um, and writing their journals and mapping the area and it's phenomenal yeah who's you I guess your biggest hero out of those Shackleton Stuart Bass Linders well I just I just recently read a book on Cook actually Cook was pretty amazing Mm -hmm. Um, he's grossly misunderstood I think yeah and he he came from a non-naval non-marine background Mm. so that was probably all the more amazing that he got to where he did and did it so well. Even Bly's trip from Tahiti through to um, Batavia, one of his little long boat, I think it was 7,000 kilometres or something in an open boat, pretty amazing. There's been a big Flinders. book written about that, hasn't there? Yeah, yeah. Flinders' trip around Australia, all amazing stuff. Yeah. Do you wish you could go back to that era? In a way, yeah. <laughs> oh, it'd be... Yeah, in a way, it'd be, it'd be pretty fascinating. I mean, um, as you say, Google Earth, there's not many things that are undiscovered these days. I mean, no. 
that might be the next thing, discovering things on Google Earth. Not quite the same, but... Yeah, I think it might have almost been done, but... Yeah. Um, I mean, I read a stat that apparently some 60-odd percent of Australia is still relatively unknown because it's well, just it's... such a big and vast continent. Yeah. You simply can't yeah. know what's out there. Not much. Beyond sort of the trails. It's <laughs> <laughs> probably why no one's gone out there to look. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> yes. Any um, aspirations for sort of, I guess, uh, multi-day sort of desert walking and things like that? Or no, not I'm, really appealing to you? You stick to really, the coastline and the mountains? Not really. Yeah, I've really got a passion for the coast and the paddling um, and the mountains. Um, although I'm not really born and bred in the mountains and I certainly wouldn't count myself as a, as a super experienced mountain person. I, I do love going in there and, you know, trips over to New Zealand and, you know, bang for your buck, New Zealand's pretty hard to beat. Yeah. You can be there in three hours, you can be in the mountains the same day, you don't have to worry about altitude and altitude sickness, and you can test yourself as much as you like. It is pretty incredible. It's, and technically it's some of the... You can go as hard as you like over there. Yeah, and that's sort of no rules yeah. type territory. Yeah, yeah, it is. Um, a bit more relaxed in terms of campfires. and. Yes. <laughs> yeah, oh, they've got a good system in the mountains in New Zealand, but... Yeah, that, and along with the... There's still so much ocean stuff I'd like to do. Well, um, you must have quite an affinity with New Zealand because of the coast-to-coast adventure race. You've won a couple of yeah. times. Yeah, well, that was... Um, won once or won... Uh, one or three times. times. Three times. Um, yeah, I just... Yeah, I did. I fell in love with New Zealand. still love the place and still have quite a few mates over there who I do trips with. Um, there is something about the South Island. It's just yeah. unbelievable. Yeah, it is. It's it's a good good playground. Yeah, people talk about the French Alps, but who needs the French Alps when you've got yeah. New, New Zealand, Zealand three three hours away on Jetstar? For exactly, hundred fifty bucks. But <laughs> and you do a bit of snowboarding and skiing as well. Uh, not much of a snowboarder. Bit of skiing, but a bit yeah. of a hack. Yeah. Wouldn't wouldn't regard myself too highly in the skiing department, but I love it. Yeah. Um, and you do a lot of sports. You, you know. You, I know your favourite sport is surfing. Uh, you do paddling, yep. uh, you're mountain cycling, bike. mountain bike. Yeah. Um, it's all about movement for you. And yeah, I guess so. And I and I love my running until I've become a cripple and can't run because I'm dodgy hip. But um, I guess coming from that, well, originally from paddling, but then moving into multi-sport and adventure racing, you had to be pretty proficient at all those things. So in the right environment, I really enjoyed them. You know, I did a lot of. I guess trail running before trail running really existed back in the uh, mid early to mid 90s and there was about three trail runs in the whole of Australia and now there would and, be oh, just... I don't know how many there would be now, but there'd be a lot yeah you know there was the Bogong, there was the Bogong to Hotham there was the uh, Kiandra to Kiandra to run and I think that was the Glasshouse Mountains run and that was about that was it that it three mm-hmm. yeah and um, I used to love just going out in the mountains doing, pick a three or a four or five day multi-day hike and run it in a day. Just as... So you take your camping gear, set oh, up tent, go No, running, I just or... take it, no, usually I just take a day pack with a bit of food and extra clothing and maybe a bivvy bag. Right. And um, yeah, and then if I had to sleep, most of the time I'd try and just do it in a, in a single push and not bother taking a sleeping bag. Just find a rock somewhere and... Well, just keep going till you got to the finish. Right. Yeah. And 
in terms of warmth, like how do you how do you keep warm out out in those sort of regions? Run harder. Run harder. <laughs> <laughs> that was my first uh, my first introduction to thermal clothing was when I first started paddling, and I was at I think second year uni, and we were paddling on the Maribyrnong River, Footscray Canoe Club. I used yep. to crunch over the grass when it was frosty in the morning, wearing shorts and a t-shirt because I thought, well, you just wear shorts and a t-shirt when you do exercise. <laughs> yeah. And it was, you know, maybe two degrees or freezing. Like some of the mornings we've had recently yeah, in Torco. Exactly. And I just thought, oh, well, you can't wear anything else. You just must have to go harder to stay warm. <laughs> <laughs> and then someone said to me, oh, you should try these thermal thermal underwear. I said, what's that? <laughs> I've got myself some thermals. And thought, oh, right. This is pretty luxurious. <laughs> <laughs> That's a whole other level but for you. 1984. So, so if anyone asks on our trail running series events during the next couple of months how do i stay warm well you go harder correct <laughs> that's the advice from yes from the race director the official but i have softened you see in my older years <laughs> well thermals like. yeah yeah got thermals now <laughs> and big suits to climb up to oh yeah yeah but that the, was uh oh the down suits are just so nice yeah do you still wear that at home <laughs> get in just to relive the memories my, one of my sons does <laughs> he hops in it watching the TV downstairs. <laughs> well, it's an unbelievable effort climbing twenty-eight thousand feet when you haven't you haven't done that previously. I think your highest before that was four thousand eight hundred meters. So yeah, four five. Incredible so. effort, and it's kind of we can talk casually about it now, but it is. You got lucky with the weather, would you say? Um, Not many people that do Makalu for the first time make it to the top. Would you say that? Uh, I don't know. I think it was certainly. I think I was the only one there in the in the whole group who was doing Makalu as their first eight thousand metre peak, um, but I didn't sort of choose that. It was just the opportunity that came along. Um, it was more the we we did take it super slow on the acclimatisation, and I think that obviously worked really well for me. Um, and as I said, I'm. I'm not super skilled in technical mountaineering, not by any manner of means, but I think just having that knowledge and skill of being able to survive comfortably in the outdoors, whether it be camping on a beach or camping in the mountains or trekking through snow or over a glacier or whatever it might be, you've got to have that knowledge and and skill to make the trip vaguely enjoyable. There's people up there who haven't even really camped almost, and you think, God, oh, they must be doing it tough. Yeah. To have all these different new facets exposed to them, plus they're at altitude, plus they're trying to climb a mountain. That's well, most people be would, hard. would never have seen crampons before, would they? Well, no. Hopefully, hopefully the ones on Makalu have. Yeah. But there's certainly stories of people coming to Everest. What are those things? Yeah, can't <laughs> put them on their feet, which is a bit scary. Couldn't even. Put them on the bottom of their feet. Well, no, in some not, case. no yeah. not to start with. They'll have to be shown how to. Yeah, it's an incredible story. It's probably only one tenth of you know. I'm sure there's a, a lot of mountaineers listening out there as well. They could would love to sort of just be firing questions at you one after the other. But I'll try and um, I'm just going to ask a couple of questions, if you don't mind, to start sort of wrapping up the, the yeah. interview. It's um. So imagine a continuum of absolute strength on one end and endurance on the other. Where would you place yourself? You know, absolute strength, you can bench press 110 kilo. 
endurance, you can run a 100k ultra. Where, where do you put yourself and where do you think is ideal? Well, it's a very interesting argument or question that you've posed because I guess in my very early days of marathon paddling, um, and when I, when I started marathon paddling, I guess the, the general thinking in probably all the, or certainly most of the endurance sports was endurance. Uh, everything was focused on endurance and you know having the having the engine to just go for a long period of time and back then there were very few endurance athletes who say worked out in the gym whereas because i was again probably just by default or by accident i was training with mainly sprint kayakers who were 500 meters and a thousand meters all power strength yeah, big type arms, athletes big chest. they're in the gym three times yeah. a, three times a week all doing strength training yeah i thought oh well i'll do strength training and i and i got introduced into the gym when i was at melbourne uni and it was back in the days when bev francis who was i think world champion power lifter used to train out of melbourne uni gym i used to go into the gym with this scrawny little <laughs> 18 year old i'd see bev there and she was like just tanked. Yeah, <laughs> I, was, I used to just look the other way and go, oh, I'm not, not going near her. <laughs> she used to scare me. Intimidated. <laughs> yeah, I was. Um, Did you learn but, a thing of two from her? Did you develop her sort of? Well, I just learned from, I guess, getting exposed to the the gym scene. This is back in the eighties, um, and concentrating on my strength. That if I develop my strength, it actually helps your endurance. Yep. And I think that's now the general sentiment amongst whether it's runners or cyclists or kayakers or whatever um that if you if you do the gym work it's it's got to help your endurance and i still say to this day that a lot of my world title success in the kayaking was the fact that i had strength on top of the endurance you know i wasn't the fastest guy off the start line but i was one of the fastest guys in the last kilometer after 41 k's yeah um and that was down to the strength so you said you believe there's definitely room for strength in in endurance sports? Absolutely, yeah, without a shadow of a doubt. Like it's essential. And, well, I don't. It's you can get away with it. Yeah. But I think you'll be better for it if you do have strength and practice I mean, strength regimes. Yeah. In the gym, and being an endurance athlete, you're never going to put on a heap of muscle. You just burn it all off because you're doing yeah. you're doing big miles on the training track, whether it's running or cycling or paddling. Yeah. So you're never going to end up looking like Arnie or Bev Francis. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's just, just doesn't happen that way. Yeah. Well, that's a good segue yeah. to the next question. Are you a believer in the uh, low carb, high fat diet? Oh, don't get me started. When it comes to endurance? Don't get me started. Or are you... All this what absolute is... bullshit that's going on at the moment about diets. Yep. Forget the friggin' lot of it. Just eat a normal diet. Yep. It's just crap everywhere at the moment in the media, whether it's bloody um, paleo or mm. keto or bloody five and two. It's just... I know it, keto is very popular with um, marathon runners and just, ultra runners. And it's all just marketing and sales job, probably led by the bloody vitamin companies, Yep. which is just dollars pissed down the toilet every morning. Um, so not a fan of vitamins, not a fan of dieting, cal- and that's never been anything for you. Not really. And what if you say just eat a normal? I tried. I tried a few of them, but I'm I'm now a super cynic in my old age. Yeah. But just it's just so simple. Yeah. You just have to eat a 
normal balanced diet, eat a range of foods, including meat, including vegetables, including nuts, including fruit, including bread, including gluten, and cereal, you'll be fine. Yep. And I've had my rant. <laughs> <laughs> I guess, yeah, coming back to a normal diet, that a normal diet for you is a lot of fruit and veg, meat, fish, poultry. Yeah, I reckon I, reckon I have a pretty pretty good balanced diet and a bit of everything. Um, because your normal uh, diet is and that's probably... Maybe, maybe you're, that's, you know, you've, you've probably hit on a good point there that my normal diet could be very different from someone else's yeah. supposed normal diet. You don't eat a lot of sugar and you're not as no. obsessed with, you know, snack bars and these things and... No. And, and I think there's, that, nothing you know, really... there's been a pretty good education process certainly happening now because I see it with my two boys that they've obviously been showing the sugar films and they, they're they super conscious of oh, really? of processed food thing and amount of sugar in diet and all that sort of thing. I've got nothing against putting a sugar in a coffee and a tea. That's, yeah. That's nothing compared to what's in some of the crap that people eat. Yeah. So you'd still, I guess, avoid boxed foods at supermarkets yeah, and, you know, snack bars yeah, and just keep it, keep it to things a that appear healthy but are actually lathered with sugar. Yeah. You can tell pretty quickly that the stuff that, as you say, even the marketers get onto it and make the packaging look good and make the product sound good yeah. but it's chock-a-block full of sugar. Well, it's interesting that it's never really been a thing for you. Like it's No, I, and in the early days I was, <coughs> I guess I was the other way where I was, I think I said early on in the discussion that I was very much high-carb, low-fat diet. Yep. Um, when I was training really hard. I oh, see so you did the opposite of generally yeah, well, what they're well, doing. Well, that was now, old school. It was always, if you want to lose weight, yeah. you eat less calories. Well, there's more calories in fat than there is in carbohydrate. Yep. Twice as much for gram for gram. So if you want to lose weight, then eat less calories. It's pretty simple. Yeah. That's the problem these days. Everyone's trying to overcomplicate it and put their spin of bullshit on it. <laughs> and everyone gets confused. And then they all go on these little fads, and then the media get hold of it, and the marketers get hold mm. of it. Just Especially simple. with paleo and... Yeah, it's just, it's all so simple, but... Keto diets, and I know there'll be a lot of people listening that'll be big fans of... Oh, there'll be the bloody vegans and, and the ketos and the vegos and the... <laughs> oh, don't get me started. <laughs> <laughs> it's good to know that you've done these endurance events with a mindset of eat whatever you want, basically. Well, and in the long races, especially the multi-day races... You've got to, it's even more important to eat. Mm. A, you've got to eat. And the only reason you're going to eat is if you like something. So if you've got a food there that you're not that enamored with, then two days into a into a multi-day adventure race, mm. there's not a chance in hell that you're going to eat it. So if Tim Tams get your rocks off, get your, get you going, then bloody eat Tim Tams. Yep. If it's salami layered with fat in it, Eat salami layered with fat in it. But you've just got to pick foods that are your favourite. Yep. And then at least it becomes then a bit of a... This is obviously during competition. It becomes then a bit of a reward system where, okay. again, on the long multi-day races, you can say, oh, God, I've got a pack of Tim Tams waiting for me at the yeah. transition. That's unreal. I've got three potato cakes that yeah, I'm going to buy. Yeah, that's <laughs> exactly. Right. I've got a cold chip sandwich with yeah. tomato sauce in it or whatever it is. So that, that relates specifically to doing events, but yeah, day-to-day -day sort of... Oh, da yeah, day-to-day -day is a bit more of a different... Yeah, as long as you're disciplined, good yeah. balanced diet. Yeah. Oh, it's good to know. Um, next question. 
<laughs> Sorry, I gave you a mouthful on that one. <laughs> the dietitians and the nutritionists are going nuts. <laughs> yeah, probably are. Um, what drives you to compete, John? Uh, well, I don't compete much these days. Um, and I'm quite happy not competing now. I think I've I've almost got the competition stuff out of my yeah out of my body. I'm just happy to completely out, mm, completely pretty, out of the system. Maybe not completely, but pretty close. Yeah. Um, now I'm just happy to go and do stuff that I enjoy, and yeah, it's become it's become a lifestyle now. You just go like, if I don't do something in the morning, I get all grumpy yeah. and I don't feel right and. And then if I don't do stuff day after day, then you stop sleeping well and mm. your whole body just goes, oh, this does, this isn't right. So It's become such it's, a natural part of your lifestyle. Yeah. I know you do something, I can verify, you do something every single morning. Pretty much. You get into the office and it's two degrees and John's been out for a paddle. So, oh. yeah, well you, And it's, when, you, when you get that into your system, it does help. You know, it helps with your diet, it helps with your digestion, it helps with your sleep, it helps with all those normal things that so often you hear people complaining about, oh, I can't sleep very well, or oh, I'm bloody constipated, or oh, I'm whatever. Yeah. Do, you know, the many thousands of ailments that... I've, I've, I've always had a treatment for insomnia, you see. I've always said, if you're insomniac, just go out and run 10K. Yeah. And if you come back and you still can't go to sleep, go and run another 10, then you will. Total exhaustion is a good cure for yeah. insomnia. Yeah. That'll get anyone to sleep. So exactly. That's uh, tip number two. <laughs> yeah. uh, wake up early, go for a 10k run. Come <laughs> 10 o'clock at night, you'll be absolutely wrecked. Correct. <laughs> um, do you enjoy the accolades? I know you've got the keys to the city. You've got the keys to the city, age 22. Does that get you anything? Uh, um, well, I, I have actually got them still sitting on the wall. Yeah, and it's a big. It is a big key. It's probably forty-five, fifty centimeters long. The key, brass. Um, in theory, it lets me open the gate, so I can drive my sheep across Princess Bridge and straight up Swanson Street. <laughs> all those sheep. All those sheep that I've got. So I should have been a farmer. Uh, <laughs> Maybe give it to so, the farmer. So that's the history of the keys to the city of Melbourne. That's apparently what it let you do back in the old days. Um, well, that's good to know. If you... I, have, I haven't done that, though. I thought you were going to say the gates to the MCG. Or... Yeah, now that'd be good. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, obviously, keys to the city, age 22, a huge accolade. Um, World Adventurer of the Year, 2015. You've, you've... Yeah, I don't... I wouldn't say I chase those. It's... Yeah, something comes with it. Just a byproduct. done well, yeah, it's a yeah. byproduct. You know, I'm, I go and do those things, whether it's competing or whether it's adventures or expeditions or whatever... I do them for myself, for my own yeah. fun and challenge and satisfaction, I guess. Yeah. And leads kind of into the next question. Um, did you feel any pressure early on for following these sort of unconne unconventional events? No, not All really. your heroes were your adventurers, so it felt normal for you? You know, I'm talking in comparison to, you know, just playing footy or playing well, cricket I did, in Well, I did, you know, I did, I grew up in the... 70s and early 80s so I did the conventional sports as well I played did, footy and played cricket you did all that too yeah. did a little bit of that um, but I went to a bit of a, a semi-unconventional school um, Woodley down in the Mornington Peninsula where they had quite a strong activity program where we'd you could pick activities during the during the day and in the middle of the day you could go surfing or go skin diving or go canoeing do basket weaving or whatever it was 
Um, and a lot of those things, I guess, I hung on to. Um, yeah. And to, because I went to that school, I guess I didn't think of them as being that unconventional. You know, some of the teachers were into it. And yeah, right. They obviously encouraged the students, us, and we thought, oh, yeah, well, this is pretty cool. Go, go canoeing on Port Phillip Bay or skin diving down at yeah. Mornington or go for a surf at Flinders and... Which is what every young kid wants, doesn't it? Yeah, I mean, it's, well, it's all part of the fun factor. You've got get to make out of the it, classroom and you got to make it fun. Go wild, yeah. And I think one of the key things there, and unfortunately, I think it's been lost a little bit today, is with the younger generation, is getting the, as I said, getting the kids to have fun in their sport. And if they've had fun, then there's much higher likelihood of them to continue doing that sport or pastime or activity for the rest of their lives and it becoming part of their lifestyle. Whereas if they're flogged into the ground, yeah, they go, oh, I'm never going running again or I'm never playing footy again. Yeah, You know, once I'm done, I'm done. Whereas I'll still happily go and ride my bike and I've been riding my bike since I was 10 years old. Yes, yeah, so there's a bit of um, that suppression of activity, I guess, in mm. primary schools these days. But I mean, we, did, we shot a video yesterday for race three of, uh, race two of the trail running series and we noticed kids wearing high-vis vests. I mean... Yeah. It's got oh. to that level. Yeah. You want me to have another rant? <laughs> <laughs> Maybe we move on to the next question. Yeah. <laughs> now, the next question, I know Bridget will be listening, so you might have to be careful, but are you planning your next big adventure? Uh, I'm always thinking of something. Um, yeah, yeah, I am. <laughs> you are? I haven't worked out exactly what Does it is Does Bridget yet. know about this adventure? Well, she sort of, yeah, she usually finds out. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I've got a few ideas. It's probably, might be another paddling trip somewhere exotic. I haven't worked out whether a warm one or a cold one. Um, but I do, and I'd, obviously I'd love to still go and do some quick trips over in New Zealand. Um, but I like to, especially the paddling trips, I can't. I can't do a flat water, easy paddling trip. It's got to be in some. They don't do rivers, and unless no. they got torrents and. Yeah. Well. Yeah. I don't do much that much white water these days, but certainly in the ocean, it's. It's got to have a bit of exposure and, at least, the potential for things to turn a bit nasty. Makes it a lot more interesting. I can't do flat yeah. water ocean paddles. So you're like piranhas in the Amazon or something. <laughs> <laughs> well, no, just where where you've really got to, I guess, play with the weather. You know, the weather becomes, that's the determining factor. And the ocean, a bit like the mountains, the ocean and the mountains are always going to win. They're always the strongest and the, at the end of the day, they're the, they hold the cards. So you've just got to play around them and say, okay, well, now it's, the ocean's given me a little window to yep. go to this point. Let's take it. Um, or sometimes you, and you've got to play that game. Yeah. I guess in the risk management process. I'm betting you have pretty good knowledge of weather systems and all the rest. And Yeah, and it's probably become a lot easier now than, you know, even 20 or 30 years ago, pre-internet pre days. Yeah. I remember one of the first times we paddled across between Tasmania and the mainland and we were sitting on Hogan Island on a dodgy phone call to the Weather Bureau saying, when's the wind going to stop? And they said, there shouldn't be any wind at Hogan Island. We're sitting up there and it's blowing 30 knots. Right. Yeah, there's plenty of wind here. <laughs> so, whereas now you can just dial it up on your phone and... Yeah. I know there's some brilliant 
sort of private forecasters of yeah. swells and especially in Torquay. And we were using so. private forecasters in, in the Himalayas in Makalut. Yep. To get to get wind forecasts for summit day. It's quite an art and a skill. Isn't oh yeah, it? absolutely. So. And and I think it is. It's a it's a combination of sort of an abstract science. Yeah. There's there's definitely a science element to it, but there's a bit of a quirky, not quite science section of it in there as well. Yeah. A bit of a feel. Yes. Know. Yeah. Yeah. After exactly. you've been paddling a thousand mornings in a row, you can't yeah. get a feel for it. Exactly. <laughs> um, so you spend a bit of time away for these adventures. How do you how do you balance family life with being away? So Makaloo, for example, you're away for the best part of two months. How do you balance that with two boys at high school? Um, Bridget obviously working day to day still at the. Yeah, well, Bridget is pretty good at looking after the boys. Yeah, <laughs> um, but I try and you know get involved where I can and get them out doing stuff with me yep. when I can. Um, so. Hopefully I don't neglect them too much. Yeah. Well, it's a great way to balance it is to kind of take them with you, isn't it? Yeah. So and we have done, you know, the last few, the last few years we've done some good trips, you know, to Tassie and down to Wilson's Prime and around the top of Australia. And so they've been exposed to a fair bit and had some, had some hopefully good times. So you get to do the good stuff and yes. Bridget has to crack the whip. Exactly. <laughs> be the bad yeah, cop. Yeah, be the bad cop. <laughs> um... I guess we already spoke about, you know, your exploits rub, rubbing off on Ferg and Harry. Yeah, yeah. Well, as I say, it's. I think it's just something that you've. Any kids, you've, ideally, you've got to expose them to a lot of, a lot of different things and a lot of options. I think early in their life, and I think the more diversity and the greater array of things that they get to sample, lets them eventually make probably a better choice down the track if they end up saying okay well I'm going to concentrate on football or paddling or running or whatever it might be at least they've dabbled in a few other things and even a lot of the you know elite sports people today you look at their childhood backgrounds and a huge number of them have ended up dabbling in a lot of other sports before they've found tennis or golf or cricket or whatever it might be yeah and I think that's a good thing and adventure, adventure sports and adventure stuffs, I think, no different. Yeah. And Ferg and Harry, they play footy and... Yeah, yeah, they play footy and do all that normal sort of stuff. Yeah. Um, the next question I'm quite interested in as well, in terms of your, your opinion, um, do you think endurance is a skill that can be learnt or is it a talent, something you're born with? Mm-hmm. Uh, bit of both. Good question. Um, like, say, for example, I weigh 120 kilo. I'm a bit down on life. I'm looking for something different. Can I turn myself into an endurance athlete? Absolutely, you can. And there's some, you know, you hear great examples of that all the time um, in, in rapid ascent world of people having a life change. But I think some people... You're either you're born with a certain number of slow twitch fibers versus fast twitch fibers, and I was definitely born with more slow twitch ones. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think you find that out or learn that fairly really early quick. on in your in your life. And the first hundred meter sprint, grade yeah. prep, <laughs> find yeah. that pretty quick. And you're right, and that's pretty much what happened to me. I go, oh, only a hundred meters, can't I run? Mm. 
You wanted to keep going. Can I run a kilometre or whatever? I always wanted to go further or go for a longer distance because I, I ended up going better over a longer yeah. distance. Um, so there's some part of it that you'll, if you're full of fast twitch fibres, you're probably never going to be as good as the best endurance athlete who's full of slow twitch fibres and vice versa. But you can still train a certain percentage of those muscles to adapt to whatever you want to do, if you want to go quick or you want to go slow sort of thing. So you're not going to see Matt Shervington doing an Ironman anytime soon. Is there any examples not, of... Not at an elite level. Like he could, There's no doubt that he could go and do an Ironman, but he might not do it in eight hours. Yeah. I know a lot of sprint cyclists struggle with the mountains on the Tour de France. Yeah. A lot of just pulling out now before the mountain stages. So. Mm. Yeah, and that's... Um, Robbie McEwen, probably the best example. Yeah, but you see... Australian cycling. You know, I used to see it in whether it was running or paddling or maybe not cycling quite as much, but all of those sports, yeah, there's the there's the sprinters and there's the endurance heads. Yep. Two, another little theory of mine, two quite different personality types as well, generalisations. Mm. You know, the sprinters, the fast twitch fibre crew, are generally more highly strung, more easily stressed, get a bit yeah. more easily upset and... <laughs> bit moody, whereas the endurance crew, cruisier, a bit more relaxed, less focused on the competition and and possibly more focused on the competition they've got with the actual course or the actual event. Mm-hmm. You know, part of the doing an Ironman is not beating the other people on the start line, it's beating the course and getting to the finish line. And I think that diffuses a lot of stress and anger and yeah. angst out of the athlete. Kind of a bit of delayed gratification too. Yeah. Rather than instant yeah. rewards. Yeah. I mean, there's no gratification after six days of running in the mountains and kayaking and all the rest is there. It's that's just hard, tough. Oh well, there's there's certainly a a feeling of um, achievement at the end um, and self satisfaction that you're going. Oh well, I've just done that. Mm. That feels good. Um, Totally different to running 200 metres around a track. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I guess, um, yeah, two to- totally different disciplines in terms of power and endurance. We've already spoken about where you'd like to be on the continuum. Sort of and and I there. think the, the good part is that as we all get older, we're definitely more, or we should, the majority of us are definitely more focused towards the endurance side of things. Yeah. You know, we just... We just can't go as fast as we used to because the body doesn't do that anymore. So you might as well go for the longer, slower stuff. And in a way, it's kinder on the body. It's not quite as intense. Yep. You can go for a bit longer and you've built, had a chance to build up those endurance stores or that endurance experience um, over the years. And how much of his endurance is mind over matter? Hmm. Yeah. <laughs> uh... I mean, is the fittest guy, the fittest guy at the running club, is he going to fall down when it's, you know, two degrees at Mount Hotham? Possibly, yeah, possibly. Um, Yeah, there's always, there's always a big mind game in any endurance sport, but I think if you've got a number of good endurance athletes, hopefully they're all pretty good mentally at that as well, but there's always going to be one or two better than the other others there. Um, 
So yeah, I, th I think it's it definitely is a significant factor. But hopefully, if you if you're well trained in the in the physical side of it, then the mental sides come along and progressed at the same time. I guess it's a kind of um, um, kind of a, a circle, circular feedback, isn't yeah. it? If you're strong in body, you're also going to be strong in the mind. But if you're strong in the mind to begin with, you're going to train harder, and so it's kind of yeah. And it's the one and the other feed themselves. It's like they're one yeah, rather than separate. I've always been a little bit, I guess, not sceptical or anti, you know, heart rate training. Because I was always of the mindset that I was a hard trainer and I worked hard and that maybe I worked too hard sometimes. Um, so I always thought, ah, I dilly-daddled dilly with heart rates for a couple of months and then I'll throw the bloody thing away. I'm guessing I, you're not a VO2 max. I don't need that thing. Yeah. Yeah. Just go out and go hard. Yeah. If it's a hard session, do it hard. Yeah. Whereas other people need that need those measurements to, yeah. to push them along. The numbers and the feedback. Yeah. So I think it depends a lot on your personality. Yeah. So you'd be, you'd be more about knowing your body, yeah. knowing your limits. Yeah. Well, sometimes you don't even know that and you go too hard. Yeah. You cook yourself. Um, but you should learn from that. So. Yeah. I was going to say, even that you would learn over time. Exactly. Yep. Is there a final destination for you? Like, is there a day when you retire and say, put on, put on the slippers, watch the golf? Jesus, I hope not. Say, that's it? <laughs> uh, I hope not. I hope not. Um, You're yeah, not the type of guy who's going to sit in the armchair and nah, kick nah. back and watch, you know. <laughs> I was going to say the midday show, but <laughs> that nah, ended about that, 20 years ago. I really hope not. Um, you know, and that was one of the motivating and really interesting things on the trip that we did on Makalu was that most of the, well, not most, there was a, a good number of climbers there well into their 60s. Right. And you're going, you see, climbing, climbing Makalu at 68 and 69, that's pretty impressive. Yep. Um, and again, you, we see that some of our events, oh, the other day at race one of the yeah. trail series, it was, what, 74-year-old? 74 years old. Running around. Doing his I'm, first trail run. I'm just going, that's so cool. Yeah. And, and, and did it in a pair of tracksuit pants and a flannel at top. Yeah. <laughs> Love it. <laughs> but you, and you see, as, as people get older, you just see the range it get wider and wider apart of the people who are sedentary, sedentary yeah. and doing nothing and they're fat and overweight and sitting on their couch watching the midday show and then there are others who are getting out doing stuff. Yeah. And you just think, oh, I'd much prefer to be the person getting out and doing stuff. And again, kind of a function of mind over matter. I mean, once you turn well, 65, think... people think, oh, I'm 65, they're sure, therefore I should be slowing down, I should be uh, yeah, there's, oh, doing things that... Geez, you hear it all the time, even being 54. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you're over 50, oh, you're getting old. Yeah, do you uh, get people saying, oh, oh yeah. John, you should be slowing yeah, down it a does. bit? It gets in your mind, oh, yeah. well, I'm getting old. Well, maybe I should just but, take it. But I think the most important thing out of all of that is is that if you're already doing something in your 40s and your 50s, it's a hell of a lot easier to keep doing it than to start doing it when you're in your 50s and 60s. Like I've always, and that's part of the reason I do something pretty much every day. If you if you stop and then you try and start again, it just hurt, hurts too yeah. much. Yeah. Like, oh, that's... <laughs> I'm not doing that. <laughs> so I can totally understand people yeah. have trouble getting off the couch and starting to go running. Yep. Bloody hurts. Um, whereas right. if you've been doing it three times a week for the last 15 years, 
just keep doing it. Yeah. You might go a little bit lesser distance or a little bit slower pace, but you're doing it. Yeah. So. Well, I've no, I've noticed it with mates. I'm 36. I've noticed noticed it with mates in their early 30s, mid 30s. Mm. I'm 30, therefore I can't be as active as I used to be. Yeah. I should have a little pot belly and you know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Now the trick is just don't stop. Just keep. Yeah. Keep doing it. That's good advice. Have injuries taken their toll? Uh, no, I've been pretty lucky, really. As I said before, I've got this dodgy hip at the moment, which I can't really run with now. Uh, but certainly during my competitive time, I didn't have any injury problems at all. Um, a little bit of sciatica decades ago now, but I could still... What's sciatica? Oh, What's... just nerve damage in the... There's an inflamed nerve sheath in the my lower back. Um, but it didn't actually prevent me from exercising. I just couldn't stand still. Right. <laughs> so I had to keep moving or lie down or sit down. Um, a major move ever more than what you did. Yeah, that's <laughs> right. Um, so no, injury-wise, I've been pretty good. Um, and yeah, the hip thing's just, well, I might have to get it fixed one day. Yeah, so despite all your activity and all your endurance events and you've had no real issues other than a little bit of trouble with your, your hip right now. Yeah. Yep. So yeah. pretty lucky. Yeah. Yeah, knees have been good and ankles are good. Shoulders have been good. So despite all the kayaking, like kayaking I imagine is pretty tough on your yeah, shoulders. Yeah, well, it can be yeah, it can be pretty strenuous on the shoulders, but no, I never had any yep. problems with it. Never done much stretching either. Maybe that's a message there. That's another topic. <laughs> Nutrition, <laughs> stretching. Jeez, I'm controversial. What's what is your view on Stretching. Stretching. Oh. I'm guessing you're not into static stretching. Yeah, it's got a... Do you have a, it's a got warm a up before you go paddling in the morning? No. No, straight into it. Jump straight on it. Well, sometimes I do because I'll do something before it, but you're doing your, going for your run or your paddle or your cycle, your warm ups, or you're, you're easing into it. You don't go straight out and go balls to the wall straight off the start. You know, you might. One of, one of my things that I used to do really regularly when I was training hard was negative splitting. You know, my, my time back always was, was nearly always quicker than my time out. Mm -hmm. And I think maybe that was my form of stretching, warming up. I was like an old diesel motor. <laughs> it took a, took a while to get going and warm yeah. up. And then as the session went on, I'd get I'd feel better and go better and go harder. So you're warming up in the race. Well, or Events. in the training, yeah, in the training um, regime, um, and oh, well, nowadays probably a bit of stretching doesn't hurt me. But no um, yoga sessions and Pilates sessions well, in between. I've had done a few, and yoga can be all right, but it just yeah. seems like a lot of wasted time. Yep. <laughs> I sort of you're sitting sitting there for an hour doing yoga, and you think I could be out surfing or paddling or doing something useful. Yep. Rising sunshine or yeah, exactly. downward dog. No, it's, <laughs> I know there'll be a lot of yoga its, fans it's listening. It's got its place, but... Yeah. It seems to me like a pleasure activity. Like, it's not something I think I can imagine our caveman ancestors sitting around doing because a lot of it, your head is down. And if your head's down, you're, you're those in times... Danger. Yeah. 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 But, but again, I think if you're... If you're doing enough, and again, maybe the range of, because I'm doing a range of activities and a range of movements, that helps in my general mobility. So if you adjust to 
ride your bike and that's all you did, then probably some stretching's fair enough. Or if you just do running, but if you if you're running and you're riding and you're doing gym and you're paddling and you're surfing and you're doing all those things and yeah. you've got all those different actions and motions helping keep the body moving. Yeah. Plus, I think if you overstretch, then you're potentially running the risk of allowing those joints and areas to be easily overextended and then get damaged or ripped or torn or whatever. Mm-hmm. Whereas if you've built up a bit of strength and um, resilience, st- almost stiffness, might not be the right word, around a joint, then that strength of muscle around there helps protect it mm-hmm. from being overextended. So similar to your view on nutrition, you're not obsessing over these things, no. stretching and diet. And... I've got too old to be obsessed about Yeah. <laughs> More worried about maps and planning the adventure. Yeah, that's right. Um, any regrets? Uh, like you spoke about your hip. Is it... Oh, well, it'd be good if that wasn't sore, but um, no, probably not. Um, always nice to have, be able to have done more. You're never going to look back and say, oh, I wish I didn't scale Makalu and I wish correct. I didn't yeah. circumnavigate South yeah. Georgia. And Yeah, you're always... And, and doing more and more of these trips or adventures or whatever only um, feeds, the, feeds the appetite. Even further. Even yeah. further. You just you just come back and you go, oh, what am I going to do now? Or, and and you end up getting exposed to, I guess, more like-minded people who say, oh, yeah, I did a trip the other last year at such and such. Or, yeah. Oh, it sounds like really Better good. do that. Yeah. Do. So kind the people, of the people around you almost motivate you to do more trips. So you can you can never uh, satisfy the bug. There was no trip we've come back and thought, oh, I got close to the line there in terms of death and continuing uh, oh yeah there's probably a couple of instances but it hasn't put me off yep it's just like oh yeah that could have that could have gone bad or a learning experience rather than oh god I'm going to settle down now and yeah. just do yeah. croquet or something <laughs> <laughs> yeah I think that's probably a fair enough comment definitely mm-hmm. a learning experience and yeah it hasn't put me off yep and we touched on Augusta um, earlier yes so this year, 2019, the last ever Augusta, the last hurrah, mm-hmm. au revoir, or Augusta, I think it's one of our slogans for the year. Um, is this going to be an emotional farewell for you? Because this is a multi-sport event, and this is very close to your heart. Uh, I should yeah. explain that there's a, a mountain bike, a swim, a run, and a paddle. And a paddle. So, Yes, at the same time, I'm sort of aware that you know sometimes things have to move on and things run their course um, and you know when one thing might dissipate or die off or become less then something else comes up so there's always there's always new new opportunities and new things around the corner um, yeah. yeah it'll be you're shedding you know, a tear no oh, I don't Maybe. know I'll shed a tear but in, pr- in private after <laughs> <laughs> we had a great time down in Augusta it's been a fantastic place the yeah. town's been super supportive they are a pretty incredible community oh, down there. Amazing community. It's a very, it's kind of isolated. It's not far from Perth, but it's still pretty isolated. So they're it's a tough bunch. It's literally at the end of the road, and I think that's what makes it such a special little town. Yeah, it's a it's a destination town. No one goes through Augusta. You've got to go there. Um, so you've got to know it's there. In yeah, the first place. you've got to know it's there. Yeah. Um, but now it'll it'll 
yeah, certainly be the end of a end of a chapter, but hopefully the start of a new one. Yeah, and obviously the Rapid Ascent team are putting putting together a crew to to do the event as yeah. a well we as a final and, farewell. And when we had the last lawn adventure race, uh, that was the intention was to put a Rapid Ascent team together, um, but we had issues with the weather and we had to reschedule everything and we we're a bit preoccupied. So hopefully that doesn't happen this year at Augusta. Yeah. But it'll be a bit of fun to actually get out there and be yeah. amongst the other competitors. And which leg are you doing? Well, I'm doing the paddle. Paddle? <laughs> what leg are you doing? <laughs> mountain bike. <laughs> I haven't even got a mountain bike. <laughs> I do, but it's a bit old. So uh, Sam Maffitt doing the, the run and Kylie. Yeah, doing the swim. Helps out part-time. Should be doing the swim. So. Um, yeah, I think it'll be a bit of fun. Yeah, I can't wait. So that's November 2 to 3. Yes. Yeah. Uh, November, so short course is on Saturday. Saturday, long course Sunday. Yep, and the Junior Survivor with the kids is on the Saturday afternoon as well. That's been hugely popular in the past. Yeah, yeah that's a fantastic event. Getting it's... kids, is that a big part of what drives you as well, getting kids involved in these events? Yeah, and certainly with events like Augusta that have been going that long, to see kids who started off in the Junior Survivor as a six-year-old sliding down the slippery slope into the mud and the like, and then 10 years later they're doing the long course race, maybe with their parents or something like that. Yeah, have you, you've is, actually seen that happen? Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. It's really Guys are going to even bigger things as endurance yeah. athletes, and that must yeah. be a nice feeling to know that yeah. they're sort of influenced. Just to see that progression and see them step up and up each year yeah. and get better and better. And I know that Braden Curry has done, has won Augusta a couple of times. Yeah, three, I think. And... Recently won Ironman New Zealand. Yeah. Off to Kona, so there's like those sorts of stories emanating from Augusta. Yeah, oh, it's got it's got some great history, but probably all, even more than the I guess the elite level is just seeing the enjoyment and the fun that the average participants have. Yeah. And average, I mean by average, in the in the placings, um, the fun and the enjoyment and the joy it brings to them and their family and um, the influences that's had on a lot of people over in the West is yeah is um, really motivating. Yeah, it must be a thrill to see. It'll be my first event and first and last. So, <laughs> well, as I said, hopefully we'll come up with something bigger and better. Yeah, that's well. We'll wait and see on that one. Yeah, and well. Um, well, you can do that event as a team, or you can do the whole lot, can't you? So yes, uh, November two to three, Augusta, the final. The last one for 2019. Um, John, we've been chatting for just over an hour and a half. It feels like about 10 minutes. I could probably ask you a million more questions about diet and nutrition. Don't <laughs> <laughs> get me started. <laughs> <laughs> I feel, feel like we haven't even scratched the surface with regard to some of your achievements. So we do have to wrap it up though. And I thank you very much for your time today and thanks for being so open and transparent so thanks Ben good, good luck for the chat. rest of the year no worries thanks John see ya